Bienvenue. Welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 11. Left Bank Paris. That's the Paris of Hemingway and Sartre, and more generally of intellectuals down the centuries. If you're going to arrive by metro, a good station to head for is Cluny-la-Sorbonne, and as soon as you get off the train, right there in the station, you will be reminded straight away that this is the land of the antello, or the intellectuals. Lots of Paris metro stations are decorated to suit their environ, and this one has plaques on the wall covered in the signatures of lots of famous people who've been connected to the area. And if you look upwards, you'll find that the same signatures are reproduced in much larger format all over the ceiling. The inscription on the plaque tells you that there are signatures there of all the poets, writers, philosophers, artists, men of science, kings and French statesmen who have made the area famous. And it is quite a list. There are dozens, to name but a few. Writers such as Racine, Rabelais, Molière, Victor Hugo, Baudelaire, and on and on it goes. So, the plan for this episode then is to look round the area where so many clever people made their intellectual home, to look at the history of the Quartier Latin, the Latin Quarter, the studenty bit, to look at that area in its heyday, which would be the 1920s, with writers like Hemingway and Scott F. Fitzgerald making it their base when they were in Paris, and the 1940s when the resident writers included people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. We'll have a look at some of the cafes that they frequented, and which are still there today, if you fancy penning your thoughts in a very highbrow atmosphere, all the while perhaps indulging in a café crème. And we're going to look too at a couple of other institutions worth a visit, which will help create the atmosphere. And they'll be the bookshop, Shakespeare and Company, and the cemetery, the Cimetière de Montparnasse. First, a little history. This area has been the intellectual heart of Paris for centuries. It was right back in the 12th century when students began to cluster here, and the teaching which they came to receive was in Latin, hence the name of the area, the Latin Quarter, or in French, Le Quartier Latin. Gradually, the masters who taught them began to form a body, work together. They elected themselves a chancellor, they produced some statutes. Some were published in 1208, telling masters things like they must dress in plain black robes which reach to their heels. They must follow the accustomed order, whatever that meant, when they were lecturing, and, perhaps bizarrely, they must attend the funerals of any master who died. In the early days, the branches of study were theology, medicine, law, and the arts. The first three were linked to Notre Dame, and that left then just the arts faculty, which made its home very much here on the left bank, and which gradually grew into an institution known as the University of Paris. To begin with, anybody who wanted to teach and who was licensed to do so could rent a room, let it be known where he was and what he taught, I guess they were all men, and students would come to them. Gradually some colleges were formed, one of the very early ones in 1253 by one Robert de Sorbonne, who of course eventually gave his name to the whole university, By 1400, there were 40 colleges or so. By 1700, there were over 60. Students had to be 16 or over, and they were known, as students have been down the centuries, for doing those two things, working hard and playing hard. And we could add to that a third thing, gaining a not very great reputation. It was thought that some of them committed acts of thievery. Some of them were known for, wait for it, brawling in wine shops. 
plus ça change, as the French say. And there's a nice explanation in Robert Cole's book, A Traveller's History of Paris, on this very topic. He wrote, Town against gown battles were frequent, brought on by the conviction among law-abiding citizens that the scholars were debauched, degraded, licentious, thieving vagabonds, and by an equal conviction among the scholars that the stuffy, ignorant, narrow-minded bourgeoisie were naturally inferior to them. But all of that notwithstanding, Paris gradually got a reputation as being a centre of learning, perhaps the centre of learning across the world. One Guillaume of Armorica wrote in 1210 that, quote, Never before in any time or any part of the world, whether in Athens or in Egypt, had there been such a multitude of scholars. And certainly some of the early ones went on to get very long-standing reputations. We're talking here Abelard, he of the Eloise and Abelard fame, who became one of the university's philosophy teachers, Thomas Aquinas, Robert Bacon, Dante, all of them were here. And just a little aside on Robert de Sorbon, who gave his name to the university. He was born in, not in Paris, but in Alsace in 1201. But being thirsty for intellectual activities, he came to Paris, and poor though he was, he found a way to study there. As he got older, things went quite well for him. He got a paid post as a canon at the cathedral, for example, but he never forgot what a struggle it had been, and he decided to do something about it for people coming along after him. So he established a community of clerics who would all agree that they would give poor students free theology lessons. And this idea took off, a college was founded, given the name of La Sorbonne, and originally it had 16 poor scholars. This was in 1253. Louis, the king, was also very behind this project. He made some donations. He appointed Robert Sorbonne to be the proviseur, the chancellor, I suppose we'd call him today. And the college's reputation grew and grew until eventually it became the name for the University of Paris in general. It may have had world renown in the 13th century, but the eyes of the world were on it again in the 20th century, 1968 to be precise. I'm not sure what Robert de Sorbonne would have made of this, because apparently he had a very particular idea of what a student's life should be like, and said, quote, The scholar walking on the banks of the Seine in the evening ought not to indulge in sports, but rather think about his lesson and repeat it to himself. In May 1968, on May the 3rd to be precise, students decided to do a lot more than just study, because they became very unhappy about various things to do with the way the university was run, started a protest, and a riot broke out when the police arrived to try and break it up. Television pictures were beamed around the world of police and students fighting each other on the Boulevard Saint-Michel. The French unions came out in sympathy. The Sorbonne was occupied for several weeks, and then eventually this all came to an end when the police stormed in. Not quite the French Revolution, perhaps, but certainly pretty weighty at the time. Another example of the French doing that very French thing, showing the rest of us how to protest if we're not happy. Sorbonne today, then, has some 35,000 students, and it all centres around the lovely square called Place de la Sorbonne, where you'll see the Chapelle de la Sorbonne, and nearby a famous school, the Lycée Louis-le-Grand, where many famous people such as Molière and Victor Hugo and Jean-Paul Sartre studied. There are lime trees, there are fountains, there are cafes, there are students toing and froing. If you like an academic flavour, it's a lovely place to linger. 
Exactly the thoughts, I think, of the American writers in the 1920s who settled in Paris. I think they came at least partly to escape prohibition, and when they arrived, they found that it was just the place to nurture their writing and their creative instincts. So we're talking about Ernest Hemingway, in particular, who spent a lot of the 1920s living here in Paris. Others who came and went would include Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife, Edith Wharton and James Joyce. They were attracted to this part of Paris, particularly Montparnasse, where the rents were nice and cheap, where there were lots of cafes, all quite bohemian in style. Typical, for example, was La Coupole, where the owner dreamt up a very intriguing plan to attract actually painters rather than writers. So there were 32 pillars inside the building and they wanted them painted artistically, not just with dulux. And so each pillar was assigned to an artist who decorated it and who was then given unlimited credit to buy drinks at the bar in return for their labours. In the heyday, there were artists like Modigliani and Matisse and Chagall coming and going from this institution. There's a dance floor downstairs. You can still see that today. Masked balls were held there and I imagine lots of other frivolities. Another cafe quite nearby is the Dome, Le Dome, and it too became the centre of artistic life, particularly for writers. We have the memoirs of a barman, one Jimmy Charters, telling us a little bit about how life actually panned out with these people. What did they actually do all day? This is what he wrote. Quote, In the normal course of events, you went there, that's to the Dome, in the morning, or whenever you got up, for a breakfast of croissant and coffee, to read the morning paper and to rehash with your friends the events of the night before. That finished, you wandered off to your occupation of the day. If you were an artist, you might attend classes at one of the art academies nearby. If a writer, you returned to your apartment. Or, with a friend or two, you might go off on some excursion to other parts of Paris, to a museum or the races, to your bank for mail or to luncheon with a right banker on the Champs-Élysées but by afternoon you would be back again on the terrace of the Dome, drinking your aperitif, that stimulating forerunner of the night to come. He goes on then to explain what happened in the evenings, so people would gather at the Dome, drink an aperitif, go off perhaps to a different restaurant for dinner. By nine or ten o'clock at night they'd be back on the terrace of the Dome, perhaps meet some new friends, form a new grouping, set off somewhere else, to a smaller bar perhaps, and maybe finish the night back at the Dome which was well known to stay open all night. There, wrote Jimmy Charters, quote, between four and five, that's a.m., they would meet the stragglers returning from the Montmartre dancings and there would be a final nightcap all around, preparatory to going home. You begin to see why they didn't all manage to get up for breakfast. Ernest Hemingway himself wrote in some detail about the life of a writer in Montparnasse in his book, A Movable Feast. He describes settling down to write one morning with, quote, the blue-backed notebooks, the two pencils and the pencil sharpener. The marble-top tables and luck were all you needed. For luck, you carried a horse chestnut and a rabbit's foot in your pocket. He describes one morning coming to what he called a good café on the Place Saint-Michel, going inside out of the rain, ordering a café au lait and then a rum St. James and writing and then getting distracted by a pretty girl who came into the cafe and sat by herself. A girl whom he described as having hair black as a crow's wing, cut sharply and diagonally across her cheek, and he describes looking at her 
and wishing that somehow he could put her in his story, but knowing that she was clearly waiting for somebody, and so he just kept on writing. He describes that process as follows. The story was writing itself, and I was having a hard time keeping up with it. I ordered another rum St. James, and I watched the girl whenever I looked up, or when I sharpened the pencil with a pencil sharpener, with the shavings curling into the saucer under my drink. I've seen you, beauty, and you belong to me now, whoever you are waiting for, and if I never see you again, I thought. You belong to me, and all Paris belongs to me, and I belong to this notebook and this pencil. Then I went back to writing, and I entered far into the story, and was lost in it. And he mentions then a bit later, that when he finished writing, he read it over once more, looked up, and realised that the girl had gone. So that gives the flavour of the 1920s in the area, and we can turn to Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir for a flavour of how it was in the period just before the Second World War, and indeed during the war. They too frequented the Dome, and Sartre remembers being in there, surrounded by Germans during the occupation of Paris. This is what he wrote about that. These Germans were tactless enough to bring their own tea and coffee, and to have these prepared and served in front of us Frenchmen who were already reduced to drinking some anonymous and ghastly substitute. They had another couple of favourite cafés, one of which was the Café Flore, in which, as Sartre said, he and Simone de Beauvoir more or less set up house. He described a typical working day there as follows. We worked from 9am till noon, when we went out to lunch. At two, we came back and talked with our friends till four, when we got down to work again until eight. After dinner, people came to see us by appointment, it may seem strange, but the floor was like home to us, even when the air raid alarm went off. We would merely feign to leave and then climb up to the first floor and go on working. Simone de Beauvoir also wrote about working in the floor and about the sort of people they mixed with there. Quote, the floor had its own mores, its private ideology. The little band of regulars who met there daily were neither wholly bohemian nor wholly bourgeois but belonged for the most part, in a vague sort of way, to the world of films or the theatre. They lived on unspecified private incomes, from hand to mouth, or on their expectations. Their god and oracle, the source of all their opinions, was Jacques Prévert. They worshipped his films and poetry, doing their best to ape his language and attitudes. So that's a flavour of Montparnasse then. Lovely place to wander around, perhaps with a notepad, or possibly an iPad, to hand sit about in cafes, pen your thoughts, then maybe the end of the story is, and make your fortune. Certainly a tempting idea, although I did read something by the writer Agnès Catherine Poirier, who tried exactly that. She went into another café that Sartre and de Beauvoir were fond of, Les Deux Magots, in high expectation. But she admitted that actually it didn't pan out as she had hoped, and was really rather a disappointment. Here's what she wrote. The first time I went was also the last. I remember sitting down, looking and waiting eagerly, waiting for something to happen, a bolt of lightning, love at first sight. I don't know, anything. Nothing happened. The place was filled with Texan tourists, not a single French soul. I felt really stupid. I never set foot in there again. As an aside, I think perhaps we should issue an apology to Texan tourists, who surely have as much right as anybody else to wander through Montparnasse, looking for inspiration. And that, I think, is the point of the Quartier Latin and Montparnasse. It's not really an area where you'll be visiting world-renowned monuments or 
very intense museums. It's more somewhere where you could enjoy wandering about, drinking coffee, mooching in the bookshops, that sort of thing. But I do have ideas for a couple of places specifically that you can visit. And one of them, in its own way, is world-renowned. And that's the bookshop Shakespeare and Company. It was there in Hemingway's day, a great favourite haunt of his, as we'll hear in a minute. And it's still there today. An irreplaceable institution. A bookshop, yes, which was started by an American expat called Sylvia Beach, who was renowned for working from nine in the morning until midnight, and who didn't just sell books, but who was very well known for encouraging would-be writers, sheltering them before they earned much money, and generally turning the place into a literary hub. It's a tradition, actually, which has continued to today. If you go and find it, have a look out at the people on the till and the people stacking the shelves. They look studenty, they look creative. I wouldn't mind betting that some of them are spending a summer or a gap year there, drinking in the atmosphere, perhaps working on their own masterpieces, and generally keeping the wonderful institution going. If you go to find it, you'll find it's a warren of an old-fashioned bookshop, lots of nooks and crannies, quite a lot of dust, ladders. place described by an American journalist, Donald W. George, writing in the San Francisco Examiner, as follows. A place that embodies a belief in books and in people. A place with a liberal, literate heart and soul. And in that sense, a place that symbolises part of the special spirit of the city. I noticed in The Lonely Planet it was described as a place which is, quote, fabled for nurturing writers. So, how did it begin? It began with Sylvia Beach. She was American, born in Baltimore, I think, but came to Paris as a teenager because her father was an assistant in the American church in Paris. And they arrived in 1901, where she promptly fell in love with the city. During World War I, she worked as a nurse, but when that was over, she decided to use her interest in all things literary and her idea that many of the Americans coming to Paris, and perhaps the Parisians themselves, would be keen to buy some English books, should that be possible. And she decided then, to cut a long story short, to open the bookshop and call it Shakespeare and Company, to give the occasional reading and to drink lots of cups of tea in the parlour out at the back. And Hemingway himself wrote about it in the book A Movable Feast. He said it was a warm, cheerful place which had a big stove in winter, shelves and shelves of books, photographs of famous writers, and generally just somewhere that attracted people like him. He certainly felt very warm about it in retrospect, but he describes his first visit as being one when he wasn't really quite sure what to expect. This is what he wrote. I was very shy when I first went into the bookshop, and I did not have enough money on me to join the rental library. She, that's Sylvia Beach, told me I could pay the deposit any time I had the money, and she made me out a card and said I could take as many books as I wished. There was no reason for her to trust me. She did not know me, and the address I had given her, 74 Rue Cardinal Lemoine, could not have been a poorer one. But she was delightful and charming and welcoming, and behind her, as high as the wall and stretching out into the back room, which gave on to the inner court of the building, were shelves and shelves of the wealth of the library. I started with Turgenev and took the two volumes of A Sportsman's Sketches and an early book of D. H. Lawrence, I think it was Sons and Lovers, and Sylvia told me to take more books if I wanted. I chose the Constant Garnet edition of War and Peace and The Gambler and Other Stories by Dostoevsky. You won't be back very soon if you read all that, 
Sylvia said. I'll be back to pay, I said. I have some money in the flat. I didn't mean that, she said. You pay whenever it's convenient. That really gives the flavour of the place. Sadly, the bookshop was closed for most of World War II. When the Germans came and occupied Paris, they shut it down. It's said, I don't know if it's true or not, that they fell out with Sylvia Beach because one of them came into the shop and tried to buy the last copy of a James Joyce novel and she refused to sell it to them. Anyway, the shop was shut all during the war. We know that Sylvia Beach spent the war in an internment camp and that at the end of the war, when the Americans came and liberated Paris, Hemingway himself liberated the actual premises of the bookshop. First place he wanted to go. But sadly, Sylvia Beach retired at that point, and it was left to others to carry on the bookshop. Another extremely famous writer who has real close connections with the Shakespeare and Company was the author James Joyce. Sylvia Beach met him once at a party and promptly urged him to call into her bookshop the next day, which he did, and she wrote about it. Quote, the very next day, Joyce came walking up my steep little street wearing a dark blue serge suit, a black felt hat on the back of his head and, on his narrow feet, not so very white sneakers. Joyce was always a bit shabby, but his bearing was so graceful and his manner so distinguished that one scarcely noticed what he had on. Everywhere he went, and on everyone he met, he made a deep impression. He too had arrived in Paris without a great deal of money, with a family to look after and feed, and with a book that he was trying to finish, the one that became Ulysses. And when he did finish it, Sylvia Beach took it upon herself to publish it for him, and out it came on Joyce's 40th birthday, the 2nd of February, 1922. Sylvia always said that she'd recognised the work as a work of genius, and that she was very proud to have been able to publish it. And not only did she publish it, but she looked after James Joyce's interests all through the 20s and into the 1930s, so they had a long-standing relationship, and she was extremely loyal and devoted to him looking after his financial interests, sending him funds on request, and generally supporting him. Don't know that he was particularly grateful. Apparently, during the entire ten-year friendship, he never got past calling her Miss Beach, or occasionally Madam Shakespeare. And he thought nothing of sending messages at all hours of the day and night when he needed something. So it's a bookshop with an amazing history, and definitely somewhere that's lovely to visit. It's right by the Seine, in full view of Notre-Dame and Ile de la Cité, and it has its own following of very devoted admirers who like to linger outside, looking at the view, and then wander in, not quite sure what they're going to find, but knowing that certainly it's a treasure trove of literary goodies. And just as we're finishing, if you're on the lookout for a second, quite low-key visit, but one which will give you the flavour of Montparnasse in a completely different way, then I suggest you spend an hour or two in the Montparnasse Cemetery. It's atmospheric, it's a lovely place for a walk, and it's the last resting place of some of the most famous literary types who spent a large part of their lives in Paris and particularly in Montparnasse. More about this in a later episode, but sticking just to literary types for the moment, you can see there the grave of Charles Baudelaire, of Guy de Maupassant, of Samuel Beckett, and the most visited of the lot is in fact just inside the entrance on the right-hand side as you go in, and that's a double grave belonging to Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. It's a slightly strange place to look at, because when I got there, I discovered it was actually 
covered in lipstick kiss graffiti. And I did wonder what they would think about that. And I also wondered how many of the people who had daubed these things on the tomb had actually read any of their work. Anyway, it's a place to just recall the literary past of this area of Paris. You can definitely spend a whole day in Montparnasse, wandering from one famous cafe to another, mooching in the Shakespeare and Company bookshop, lunching somewhere, perhaps at one of said cafes, and then taking a stroll round the Montparnasse Cemetery. OK, so that's it for this week's episode. Next week there'll be an episode entitled The Seine and the Champs-Élysées. going to look at two ways to really get to know the city of Paris, whether by walking or sailing down the Seine, or walking along the Champs-Élysées, with a little explanation about some of the things that you'll pass en route, whichever of those two routes you take. For now then, thank you very much for listening. Merci. I do hope that you'll join me again next week. And until then, au revoir. <laughs>